Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Catherine Tonks, my first guest from Australia. Catherine Tonks is the founder of Sydney Endocrinology, a staff specialist of the Department of Endocrinology at St. Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, visiting medical officer at the Matter Hospital, Sydney, and clinical research officer of the Diabetes and Obesity Research Program, Garvin Institute of Medical Research, Sydney. She's also a conjoint senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales and an adjunct clinical associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. In 2016, she completed a PhD looking at the molecular causes of insulin resistance and diabetes. Dr. Tonk's areas of interest are diabetes, type 1, type 2, and pregnancy-related, insulin resistance, including polycystic ovarian syndrome, thyroid disorders, obesity, and other endocrine diseases. She continues to teach medical students and actively participates in ongoing medical research. In the episode, Dr. Tonks debunks some common misconceptions surrounding weight loss, weight gain, and conditions like type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. I know you're going to learn so, so much from everything she shares. But first, I want to share an Apple podcast review with you. Hamburglar222 rated the Health Investment Podcast five stars and wrote, Refreshing podcast about health. Brooke has a refreshing way of explaining health, and the people she interviews bring a fantastic perspective on topics I have always wondered about. I am officially making the health investment. Well, thank you so much, first of all, Hamburglar. Love your little handle there. Thank you for your kind words. I'm also very happy you have decided to make the health investment. And I just want to let you know, I am tremendously grateful for each and every review because first of all, reviews provide me with useful feedback, but also they really help the podcast to grow and reach more people. And that's my ultimate goal to reach and help as many people as humanly possible so that we can all look and feel our best. For those reasons, I'd truly appreciate it if you could take five minutes of your time to leave a review yourself. You can easily do so by visiting thehealthinvestment.com slash review. Thanks a million in advance. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. Tonks. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing. You deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing. There are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm going to share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I want to help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one. So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, 
Hi, Dr. Tonks. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Health Investment Podcast. I was just sharing with you off air that I'm pretty sure you're the first endocrinologist to have on and you're my first guest from Australia. So this is an especially exciting interview for me today, and I'm so grateful for you to share your time with us. Thanks, Brooke. I'm very excited to be here. Would you mind by sharing your story and your background with us and specifically why you became an endocrinologist? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an endocrinologist who has a particular interest in metabolic health. And it's uh, one of those things that people ask you why you want to be an endocrinologist. It's actually hard for anyone to want to be an endocrinologist because nobody actually knows what an endocrinologist is until you get started. (laughs) Um, But endocrinology is a medical specialty that that particularly involves problem solving, which I quite like, um, and the optimization of health in addition to actually treating illness. So because we see a lot of people with problems that have symptoms that could be caused by a multitude of different things, um, like things like fatigue or hair loss or weight gain, um, you end up becoming a bit of a sleuth and um, often we're not even the first medical specialist that you'd be sent to see. So an interesting field for me, challenging and rewarding. Right. So if somebody is having hair loss and weight gain, for example, they may see their general practitioner and then get referred to you if the general practitioner can't really figure out the causes. Yeah. Sometimes people get sent to dermatologists or they get sent to gastroenterologists. And sometimes I'm the third or fourth um, specialist that has seen that patient. But again, it's because the symptoms could be caused by so many things. Right. So what's your first course of action? Is it blood work or how do you kind of get to the root of the issue? Yeah, I mean, endocrinology is essentially a a specialty um, around hormones or chemical messengers in the body. Um, And the hormones are usually naturally self-balancing. And so not only can we measure the hormones, but often for me, it's important to find out the circumstances the person is in because that will also affect the balance of the hormones. So so it will involve uh, taking a careful history, doing an examination and looking for specific clues that will lead you one way or the other. But, But usually it's taking a systematic approach to the person is probably the way that I put it. And then you mentioned that you specifically have an interest in metabolic health. Do most endocrinologists have that interest or is that a specialty that you specifically have? Look, I'd probably class myself as a diabetologist. So in particular, I'm, uh, I have an extra expertise in diabetes um, with insulin being the hormone that controls diabetes uh, there. Uh, but no, endocrinology is extremely broad because we have hundreds and hundreds of hormones Uh, There are people who may subspecialize in hormones from different parts of the body, like pituitary hormones or hormones from the adrenal glands. There are people who specialize in thyroid. And then there will be people that specialize in metabolic health, like myself, which which is more insulin resistance, obesity, um, and as I mentioned, diabetes. Mm, And what made you want to specialize in that? A little bit of serendipity, really, for a long time, I wanted to be a dermatologist, which doesn't seem related, but actually it is in the sense that the skin manifests symptoms of many different illnesses and similarly with endocrinology. Um, I just found it very interesting and and when I started uh, my medical training, 
slowly became more exposed to endocrinology and found it just more fascinating. So, yeah, nothing specifically, hmm. but just just found it uh, enjoyable. Right. I know on your Instagram, you say, you know, that you specialize in diabetes and mm. weight loss and thyroid function. So all the metabolic functions. So and you also really love new research and, you know, are really staying on top of different food interventions. So I want to definitely touch on that. Mm. But just tackling diabetes, insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, do those all kind of fall under the same umbrella, would you say? to start out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the major, I guess, misconceptions with diabetes is that it's caused by eating the wrong food. Um, but actually, it, uh, all those conditions that you mentioned are caused by insulin resistance. And therefore, uh, the treatment for all of them, the basic fundamental treatment um, uh, is actually the same or similar. And insulin resistance, well, insulin is a hormone uh, that's made by your pancreas in response to glucose or sugar in the blood uh, and some people's insulin doesn't work very well and so we call that insulin resistance so it can't get rid of the glucose that's in the blood. Uh, this insulin resistance is um, genetically determined, very strongly genetically determined and is the cause of many illnesses including polycystic ovarian syndrome, gestational diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, PCOS uh, and then also things people don't think of like cardiovascular disease, um, uh, you know, some types of um, memory loss, uh, uh, et cetera. So quite a broad um, cause, um, but luckily uh, treatable as well. Oh, okay. And then how, what's your first course of action for treatment? So you said it's not connected to food necessarily, but do you use food in your treatment? Yeah. So, so, a hundred percent um the the cause is strongly genetic compared to caused by food so uh, your baseline insulin resistance uh, is genetically determined and it's also increased uh, when we get older so as we get older it's also increased in pregnancy due, due to the hormones of pregnancy hence uh, gestational diabetes um mm. But there are a number of reversible causes of insulin resistance, one being sedentary, two being more overweight or having more body fat, uh, and um, three, things that people don't think of are things like stress, uh, sleep deprivation, etc. So when we look at treating insulin resistance, apart from um, medication that can treat insulin resistance, um, Dietary changes will make a small amount, uh, but physical activity probably does more than dietary changes. So I'd take a multifactorial approach to really get on top of it uh, properly or to, to make the treatment more long-term and sustainable. Mm, okay, so diet, movement, and then you mentioned sleep and yes. stress management also. So is that part of your multifactorial approach? Yeah, so one of I guess one of the... Um, more interesting, well, at least to me, um, areas that are that is becoming um, more researched, particularly around diabetes and insulin resistance, and in fact around many other fields of medicine, is the presence or the fact that we have something called clock genes. And what this means is all the processes in our body that burn fat or that um, repair the body or that digest our food, they all have optimal times to occur based on 
the programming that's in our clock genes. And so there are optimal times for people to sleep and there are optimal times for people to fast and there are optimal times for people to to feed or eat something um, based on our clock genes. And, we're, and the, the more research that's coming out about this, the more it's apparent that, um, you know, having structure in your day, having habits and having um, things that you do regularly uh, that are consistent will have more effect on your uh, health and metabolism than we previously thought. So popping a couple of pills is not going to make a big difference in that. Um, but yes, um, definitely uh, I would take a that multifactorial approach and now there's a scientific basis for it, which is the presence of these clock genes. So are the clock genes the same in everybody? Does everybody need to rest and eat and fast at the same times or does it differ from person to person? Yeah, like, like all genes, we have um, differences between people or little sort of mutations, if you like. Not all mutations are bad, but understanding what is optimal for yourself um, is probably more important than working out what's optimal for the, the entire group. But yes, there are in, in studies, and they're all fairly small studies, uh, there are certain times which are more optimal to eat and certain times that are more optimal to, to not eat or to sleep for the majority of people. But there are individual differences for sure. What are those optimal times that were studied still in a small group, but yeah. most optimal for most people? Yeah, so um, I'll give you an example. Um, quite recently, there was a paper published that looked at, um, you know, the, the quite popular um, trend towards fasting, uh, you know, 16-8 diet as an example where you fast for 16 hours and eat for eight hours, and uh, found that it was actually there was a genetic basis where people um, who um, didn't eat um, for 16 hours and then and then ate in the eight hours, they actually had a more favourable fat-burning profile. So the clock genes link with um, the genes for other processes in the body like burning fat um, uh, and, and repair processes in the body. Uh, so that's one example, but there are many small ones. And um, you may often find that you yourself, you know, will have a better night's sleep if you go to bed at certain times uh, than if you go to bed uh, later. Or you might find that you feel a bit tired and bloated if you eat at certain times and feel a bit better if you eat at other times. So there's a way to work it out for your own self, um, but certainly in groups, um, we're not that different to animals where, you know, these sleep-wake cycles uh, really control how we burn fat and how we store fat. Hmm. Do you recommend intermittent fasting for most of your patients, that 16-8 protocol? Look, I guess it depends what the person's health goal is. So um, I guess the most common reason people might talk to me about diet is uh, uh, weight loss. Uh, in terms of weight loss, really um, the most effective diet is the one that you can sustain long-term. And mm -hmm. whether it be 16-8 or Mediterranean diet or low-carb diet, etc., cetera, um, most people will regain weight at the two-year mark unless it's a, a type of diet they can sustain. So from that viewpoint, not, no one diet is more favourable than another, although the low-carb diet's people do lose weight more quickly in the first six months 
but the total weight loss and then the weight regained is very similar between all diets by the four-year mark. Hmm. So uh, 16 8 works quite well for some people because there's not many rules that you have to follow. Yeah. I really I have done that for a few years and I really like it for myself. Yeah. But then I work with clients and I have an online weight loss course and it works for some people and it doesn't for others. Yes. So I'm very much of like mind with your approach of you have to just figure out what works for you. Yes. And I think some people get frustrated by that because they want you to say here's the golden key to unlock all of the perfect things that will work for you. But I can't really tell you that, you know, I can no. give you some guidance, but I don't know exactly what works for your likes and dislikes and your lifestyle. So the goal is really figuring that out for yourself, I think. Yes. And uh, maintaining nutrition in the meantime as well, um, because some people can do a 16-8 diet where they actually end up eating more calories because their hunger signals change and so that doesn't suit them but some people it suits their lifestyle because you know one less meal to think about for instance Um, but in those people then you you probably want to work with them to make sure that overall within the calories they are consuming they're getting um, enough of their nutrition Um, so yes I think we would have a similar approach for sure Does it matter, have you noticed with the research at all, when you do your eating window, if you are doing the fasting, so if you do it earlier in the day or later in the day? I, look, I I just don't think there's enough information to say that, but I think the thing that would be important is that whatever you do, you do it regularly. So it seems as though the clock genes aren't set, um, but that you kind of train them and then they turn on and off at the appropriate times for you. So uh, the older I get, the more I realise that habit is probably um, very useful in maintaining health. And so uh, no specific times, um, but, you know, good evidence in many situations that being regular and then having those windows so that your digestion turns on at the right time and turns off at the right time, for instance, um, would, would be the key. Mm. And then are most people better suited to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier, would you say? Yeah, I think the general trend is um, not necessarily going to bed earlier, but I think a lot of people miss their sleep cues and then Mm. lose the opportunity for deep or REM sleep. Um, But because of the nature of our uh, modern lifestyle. So as an example, it gets dark pretty early, but we all leave the lights on and then we go watch a, a screen of some kind, either, you know, TV, Netflix, YouTube, um, etc. You'd be better off listening to a podcast and going to bed or reading a book and going to bed so that your body prepares for the, for the REM sleep. So I haven't really answered that question, but in general, yes, our bodies are attuned to dark and light uh, through hormones like melatonin and our clock genes, uh, but we often miss those sleep cues. And whether it's just the fact that we've missed the sleep cycle or um, our natural genes uh, 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 um, make, make it so that we should be asleep earlier, hard to tease out with the information we have but probably it also dovetails with the fact that then we wake up later, it's already light, and then we don't go outside to get any sunlight to turn on our own melatonin again. Um, And 
then again, we're just missing that cycle. It's not matching um, with nature. Mm. Yeah, so I often advocate people to wake up and go outside as soon as they can or sit near a window at the very least. I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask that. That's something I could definitely work on myself. (laughs) (laughs) As you're talking, I'm like, check, check, check. I need to do these things. Uh, At least breakfast by a window with natural light works really well. It actually improves sleep uh, to, Mm. to have some sunlight. And if you're exercising first thing in the morning, I usually tell people, don't wear your sunglasses. Really try to get that natural light on the back of your eye. Mm, okay. Um, and then have you ever heard of the research on chronotypes? Yeah, I mean, again, I just... Is that a thing? <laughs> I, look, I think it's, in theory, it makes sense. Um, but there's just probably not enough evidence to to say you're one type or another type or it's because of this gene or that gene. Right. But but people themselves probably know that some people do function better first thing in the morning and some people do find it harder to get to sleep um, early. So, yeah, look, definitely there's something in that. What we should do about it, I don't know. Right. It's For people who don't know, it's this idea that some people are predisposed to stay up later and wake up later because I think the idea is that evolutionarily we couldn't all be sleeping at the same time. Some people had to stay up and keep watch at night. So maybe genetically some of us have that in us. The reason I asked is just because I kind of find that I do better when I go to bed a little bit later and get up a little bit later. Um, And then I know people who do really well when they go to bed earlier and get up super early, but I've never really been able to kind of, force myself to go to bed earlier but maybe if I did the things you just mentioned that maybe I would be able to Uh, that could just be me making excuses I think I have read some research where people uh, have been asked to essentially go to bed early and wake up early and it is doable and they still function pretty well but Mm. yeah some people and it's multifactorial isn't it getting to sleep yeah you you might have a lot of things that you want to get done or you you might have things on your mind and there are different ways that we deal with that going to bed process um so yeah I don't know I don't know for sure yeah no that makes sense do you how much sleep do you generally recommend that people get yeah look much more than people actually get so the Mm. recommendation is for adults uh to have you know seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep at night now um Again, just with our modern lifestyle, I, I know very few adults that actually get that sleep and and parents who actually get that sleep unbroken. Um, so the aim would be to be in bed at least those hours if you could, um, but whether, you know, whether or not you achieve that, but that would be optimal for, you know, memory function, um, you know, body repair and also metabolic health. There's really good... Um, Again, smallish studies that look at sleep deprivation and even an hour of sleep deprivation a night predisposes to weight gain because we end up eating many more calories um, just because we're awake a little bit more and we're feeling a bit tired. Our body uh, tends to feel hungry and turn to high calorie-dense food. Mm, I've read the same kind of correlation with stress when you're under a lot Mm. of stress Mm. can you kind of elaborate have you read that too research on eating more or being more naturally disposed to kind of sweets and chips and things when you're really stressed out 
Yeah. Look, there's quite good. So when we're stressed, our body makes a number of what we would call stress hormones, uh, for instance, cortisol and adrenaline and things like that. And we definitely, when you have those on board, you're definitely craving um, particularly sweet foods and calorie-dense foods. Um, So stress management is actually quite key to dealing with insulin resistance. Um, And I didn't mention, although I mentioned that the sleep deprivation Uh, you eat more, which um, you might not even notice the extra calories you eat because it's the choice of foods rather than the volume of foods that that might change. But but sleep deprivation also increases insulin resistance, um, probably through similar mechanisms of making the body make more stress hormones. Uh, But a single night of sleep deprivation will increase your insulin resistance by about 30%. So treating insulin resistance... um, you know, getting some sleep is quite helpful for that. Mm-hmm. And then by sleep deprivation, does that mean even just getting six, six and a half hours of sleep every night? Or does it mean deprivation, extreme deprivation, getting only four hours? Yeah, look, um, the, so it's it's the, the reduction in sleep hours, but also how many nights it goes on for. Um, so let's just say you flew, not that you can now, but if you flew across the world Hmm. and were jet lagged, you'd be sleep deprived and be quite insulin resistant the next day. Um, But yeah, even small amounts of sleep deprivation uh, will have an impact the next morning on on the body. So any amount, really. What do you say to people who tell you they're fine and they function just fine on five or six hours of sleep every night? Yeah, look... You can still function, but it doesn't mean you're not insulin resistant or more insulin resistant than you would otherwise be. And it doesn't mean that you're not having the extra calories um, right. that you wouldn't otherwise have if you weren't that tired. People can function under extraordinary circumstances and people just become used to feeling a certain way, especially if that way of life has crept up over a number of years. Um, the number of people I see who say, oh, look, I don't feel that bad, but then we get treatment started and then they say actually now that I look back uh, I was actually really tired I, I feel much better now mm-hmm. right you mentioned diet and just whatever diet you can sustain long term what are your general nutritional recommendations for people yeah so um it's a very big question I would often refer people to see a dietitian. um as well, so knowing that I'm not necessarily the food expert, but I, but my food principles, if I can put it that way, um, that I think would benefit everybody. Uh, number one would be um, eat more fibre. Uh, mm. So we often, uh, our Western diet is a very low fibre diet, a lot of processed foods, uh, and um, people are afraid of eating um, carbohydrates often and that's often the greatest source of our fiber so choosing uh, high fiber foods would be my number one fiber is useful as a prebiotic and um, there's reasonable evidence on our gut health and gut microbes that if we feed our gut microbes more fiber they um, the the types of gut microbes that grow better under those circumstances 
help us keep our weight down and reduce insulin resistance. So um, eat more fibre is definitely number one, apart from the fact that it probably also reduces your risk of bowel cancer. Hmm. Um, Number two, I would say, is to eat more plants. Um, For a long time I um, thought maybe we should just eat less meat and maybe that's also true, not to over-consume, but I think just eat more plants in general for most people um, if that becomes the primary goal. It becomes easier to eat um, less of other foods if you need to. Uh, It will also help eat with the fibre intake. Um, And I think in general we eat very few um, veggies compared to what we need to eat. So I would often say, and even in my own family, try to load half the plate with veggies uh, and then you can load the rest of your plate with whatever else you like. Um, Mm. And then, yeah, if you are choosing um, proteins, I I always like to include proteins with every meal uh, because it improves the feeling of fullness or satiety uh, and uh, stops you overeating on uh, carbohydrates, uh, which then increases your overall calorie intake. Um, So in terms of weight maintenance, I always try to uh, prioritise some proteins, lean proteins, plant proteins, I would try to choose, uh, you know, lower fat versions of, of proteins. Um, and, yeah, they'd probably be my my three goals. And the, probably the last thing would be uh, I never cut any foods out. I never say don't eat this or uh, don't eat that. I think uh, deprivation creates cravings and unhappiness. Life's too short to be unhappy. Uh, so I say eat whatever you like but uh, eat it in moderation. So mm-hmm. if you really love chocolate, have a little piece. And if you really want that cake, have a little piece. But don't eat a big piece every night because then you won't be able to achieve your health goal with that. Mm -hmm. I love that approach to it. I agree 100%. (laughs) Uh, Did you go to medical school in Australia? Yes. Yes, I did. So, yep. Yeah, I'm just curious. I've had other doctors on from the United States and they've said that they didn't get any type of nutritional training in med school, or if they did, it was maybe two hours or three hours in a lecture. And it wasn't really using nutrition to prevent illness. It was more just, you know, how vitamin C, a lack of vitamin C could lead to scurvy or these kind of more crazy dietary things. Yes. I'm wondering if med school in Australia differs at all. Did you learn nutrition? No, look, minimal. Um, I think, and, and very similar to what um, your U- US uh, colleagues have uh, mentioned. But I think also uh, in endocrinology, I work with dietitians a lot and I ask them a lot of questions and, um, and also do a lot of research myself, looking things up if it's something that interests me. Uh, and these are common questions that I get asked by patients and obviously want to give them some reasonable advice uh, on that. Uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So it seems as if for, you know, obviously medication, I'm sure is sometimes necessary, especially when dealing with hormones, but for the natural things that we can all be doing, focusing on nutrition, movement, stress management, and sleep, are those kind of your big four? Yes. Yes. I I would, um, not to downplay diet, um, but if we're talking about insulin resistance, um, then I would prioritize physical activity. 
um, in terms of preventing or reducing insulin resistance, physical activity is extremely effective. Uh, as an example, people who, who have pre-diabetes or blood glucose levels that are not normal but not in the diabetes range yet, um, when they exercised 150 minutes a week, they reduced their risk of developing diabetes over a three-year period by two-thirds. Uh, mm. The diet changes don't have as big an effect apart from what they do to weight. Um, so I would prioritise physical activity if insulin resistance is your goal. But if you were interested in your weight, I would prioritise the dietary changes um, and looking at uh, more, just more volume in terms of vegetables. Uh, uh, so it, I guess it depends on your goal as to what, what you would focus on. But, yes, those in, in some combination those things would all play a part. When you say 150 minutes of exercise a week, what constitutes as exercise in those studies? Yeah, so that particular study was in middle-aged people who were overweight. Uh, so again, trying to personalize it to the to the person in front of you, um, you might not use the exact same rules. But um, in that study, they, they did mostly cardiovascular exercise and a little bit of resistance. Uh, in other studies, um, essentially the improvement in insulin resistance from sedentary to any exercise is a giant leap and then mm. from any exercise to the o- optimal combination, which is probably a combination of weights and cardio, is a smaller leap. So pretty much I would advocate any exercise that you enjoy, similar to the diet, um, yeah. and it doesn't have to be putting on gym gear and going and jumping around it may be that you like walking your dog it may be that you enjoy bushwalking or team sports or whatever it is whatever suits you as a person um but i if i was going to say what is optimum i would suggest that that not only cardiovascular exercise but adding in resistance and weights uh, is actually extremely beneficial uh, for insulin resistance and also the maintenance of weight loss long term so in terms of insulin resistance, um, re- uh, resistance training uh, increases the number and t- um, changes the type of our energy-burning units called mitochondria in muscle. Hmm. Um, and so that will reduce your insulin resistance. Uh, and in terms of weight maintenance, if you lose weight by dieting alone, for every kilo of weight you lose, half a kilo is fat and half a kilo is muscle. Uh, And when you lose muscle, you actually lose your ability to burn fat at rest. So people often will reach a plateau for weight loss as they lose too much muscle. Uh, Mm. So I advocate adding in the exercise resistance if you can uh, to maintain muscle mass uh, so that you can hopefully continue uh, the weight loss uh, with the dietary changes. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I like your approach a lot of figuring out just again, what is sustainable for you. Mm. I always say when it comes to exercise, you can't hate what you're doing. It has to be convenient ish, Yes, you know, and you have to schedule it. Or I know for myself, it just doesn't happen. If I don't put it in my Google calendar or consciously think about which days this week, am I going to work out? And when am I going to do it? It often just falls by the wayside. So I love your approach and, you know, a lot of people will say this is the perfect thing to do or this is the perfect thing to do, but 
it's not necessarily perfect for everyone, no. especially if it's not something you can maintain. Yes, and always be a bit skeptical if they're trying to sell you something in particular. Um, right. I think because there's definitely no one size fits all. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Can you speak at all to the disruption that happens in our hormones when we're on this kind of yo-yo dieting where someone will lose 30 pounds and then regain it and then lose it again? I've read that that's even worse for your body than maybe just sustaining a higher weight than you would want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so interestingly, um, the only way to lose those drastic kilos in the first place is usually by doing something unsustainable. So uh, some of this research um, came out, for instance, from uh, we have this program on TV called The Biggest Loser mm-hmm. where people go into this uh, unnatural environment where they're exercising six hours a day and they have a nutritionist that cooks all their food. That, that's not going to happen in real life. Right. And then as soon as – and they'll lose a lot of weight, but as soon as they go back home, the weight comes back on. The change that happens for these people is that their what we call their basal metabolic rate is is really slowed down uh, by the weight loss. So because your body goes uh, into a starvation phase because it's so drastic, the genes um, slightly alter and tend you towards keeping any calories that you consume. That then stays with you even as you regain the weight. And, and so you are actually worse off in the long run if you have a very severe um, weight loss through, um, you know, essentially what is a starvation phase. Yeah, the body mm-hmm. just doesn't like that. Mm. And then you gain it back. And then probably yeah. you do it again. If you did it once, then it's That's looking right. for the next best thing to do that. That's right. Um, I've heard some people, I mean, it seems to me that they're kind of confusing this, but they'll say that, intermittent fasting puts you in that starvation mode and it does that same thing is that true look I think there's a real difference between fasting for a few hours and actually getting quite hungry um, versus uh, when you're um, going into ketosis and fasting for many days or weeks Uh, so I think again it's all about sustainability Uh, Any severe diets that restrict macronutrients uh, so that you become malnourished are are definitely going to be a no-no. But if you're intermittently fasting and you're turning your your genes on and off within a 24-hour cycle, that's actually probably what nature actually intended for us anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think that would have the same detrimental effect. I think it's the problem where there's all these zealots and they get really obsessed with something and then they're telling everybody to do it. 
like we've mentioned, or maybe people confuse because fasting now can mean so many different things. I mean, I fast every day. That doesn't mean I'm not eating anything every day or it's different every day for me. Sometimes it's 12 hours, sometimes it's 16 hours. Mm. Um, But then some people are doing two or three day fasts and some days are doing, some people are doing month long water fasts. So how do you feel about those longer fasting windows? Look, I personally think that, I mean, again, depends how long they are, but they can be quite dangerous and limit your capacity to function. Um, look, in the, in, the, in the wild, animals, uh, they're all a little bit different in the way they store uh, nutrients and then release it. We have um, fat stores and we've got liver glycogen, and liver glycogen will last us a few hours. So usually you use that up um, during your intermittent fasting, you know, the 24-hour cycle. Um, or if you do a marathon, for instance, it takes about two hours of running to get rid of your liver glycogen. So you've still got quite a lot of energy stored there before you then start to break down a lot of fat. But then not only do you break down fat, um, you break down muscle. And then it's all the byproducts of the breakdown of fat and muscle that can be fairly toxic on the body. Uh, So I think I wouldn't advocate fasting, you know, for days on end, but fasting within a 24-hour cycle I think would be considered physiologic. That is what your body w- was naturally designed to be able to do. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. So it seems just kind of moderation, like you've said, slow weight loss, none of these extreme juice yes. cleanses or no. like lose 20 pounds in a week or whatever these things are promising. Um, yes. None of those are going to be healthy for us metabolic- metabolically specifically or, yeah. Yes. Uh, look, I, I would definitely um, agree with that and say that, um, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, this kind of line of moderation and slow and steady is not popular. Uh, it's not cool, uh, but it actually works uh, over mm-hmm. time. And so um, you just have to keep, uh, I guess, keep uh, pushing on um, right. and, and, and hope that the message gets across. But, you know, people are always being sold hope, unfortunately, um, right. that there's another solution. Um, yeah, it's very unsexy to say, yeah. you know, moderation, <laughs> slow and so You can't sell that in a pill no. or any type of cleanse. No. Um, so, yeah, it's really unfortunate. I'm sure you get really disheartened as well when you're on social media and seeing these things. I know also a lot of people call themselves hormone experts that I've seen in just the dietary space. How do you feel about that being an actual hormone expert? Uh, Look, I find it um, because explaining hormones can be quite complex, it's very hard to have any conversation that's a a quick and and easy conversation about it. But, you know, on that note, perhaps I'm going to open a can of worms, but I will touch on this idea of adrenal fatigue or I have a lot of people who come to me and think, you know, I've got Hashimoto's, I, that's why I'm so tired, my hair's falling out, I can't lose weight. And what I would say uh, to people like that is um, although you may, it seems convenient to consider that our hormones are not doing us justice, because our hormones are so self-regulating, it's very unlikely that your hormones are a little bit out uh, if you're eating well, sleeping well, etc. And what I what frustrates me isn't the fact that people, you know, uh, feel like they have this other diagnosis, but it's that they might be missing uh, 
the actual treatment that that they could have so that they feel better. And so if you say, oh, no, it's definitely my thyroid, and then we do your thyroid test and they look in the normal range, but you then go on a thyroid extract, you might be missing your other conditions that we could actually do something about. And as an example, I literally saw a lady yesterday. She came back for review and I initially saw her. She said, I'm just exhausted. I can't get out of bed. Um, you know, is it my thyroid? And I said, well, let's do all that, all your checks. And she ended up having diabetes and she ended up having undiagnosed and untreated Crohn's disease. And after having had those treated over two or three months, she came back and said, I feel great. And I didn't mm. realize how bad I felt um, before. Yeah. So for me, it's really the missed opportunity that having these unsubstantiated diagnoses can, you know, that can happen to people. Because then you end up missing what's actually going on or just chalking it up to, oh, I have X, but you might not actually have that. Yes, yes. And then when you speak about that woman, for example, so are people in your practice generally able to wean themselves off of medication if they use certain lifestyle interventions? Or do you find that it kind of has to be both for a while? Uh, Look, I think it's so individual. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also think, uh, although I'm advocating a lot of lifestyle, I think there is a role for some medications um, because they'll give you extra benefit. And if you discuss that with the individual person, they may choose to remain on the medications or they, they, they may choose to come off. Uh, as an example, um, it has frustrated me over many years that there's no holistic or coordinated lifestyle program for people to not only look at diet, exercise, stress management, etc. So we actually put together a 12-week program that we're calling Reclaim, um, where you're reclaiming sort of your energy levels. Um and we've got like a dietitian, exercise physiologist, clinical psychologist, and the doctor who sees people over this 12-week period. And then finding that uh, at the end of that, many people do reduce their medications, um, but then there may still be a role for certain medications. So uh, you, I think you optimise both. You, I mm-hmm. wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I would say, look, let's just look at your circumstance and what would benefit you? We'll talk about your options and, and you can choose. Yeah, I think that's such an important approach. Again, just looking at the unique individual and not thinking, oh, this worked for that person, therefore it's going to work for me. It's just so, so based on yourself. Yes, yes. I think the idea of sort of personalizing medicine or personalizing any intervention is where you get the value out of seeing your health professional because you could do a Google try to see if you're a one-size-fits-all, but at the end of the day, there are many sort of options out there and whatever might suit you best might not be the most popular uh, Mm -hmm. thing out there. Right. Well, I'm so grateful of the time you've spent with me today. Uh, I ask each of my guests a final question, which is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Yes, uh, I... I like the idea that um, the word investment sort of brings to mind sort of finances uh, <laughs> as well, uh, and because I, I think you know health is very similar to finances in the in the sense that often we don't take the time to sit down and plan it out. Um, that there's no quick fix, but if you do take the time uh, to look at your physical and mental health status as it is today, and then where you're trying to get to then you can put together a plan, which is essentially like a daily savings plan 
or a budget um, and then you can work towards that goal and over the course of many years it's actually quite easy to achieve but if you're trying to win the jackpot it's not going to happen so I think um, the health investment to me is about um, setting your habits planning out your goals and then and then essentially putting in place those those daily activities uh, that even before you know it you're able to achieve your goal. I love that. I love the way you put it in terms of finances. I think about that a lot as well, but it makes me think of all of these crash diets or different things, one size fits all approaches we've been talking about of somebody just standing in a casino, trying on a slot machine to win the jackpot. And it's just like, that is not the way to go about it, right? It's just the unsexy, again, the day in, day out choices we make that compound over time, but it takes effort little by little, but you'll get there eventually. That's right. And if it's a daily small effort um, versus the big, you know, two, three week effort, um, it'll actually work better uh, in the long run. Right. Well, where can listeners follow and find you? Um, so I um, have obviously been a little bit off Instagram lately, but I do have a page, uh, Dr. Catherine Tonks. Um and uh, happy to, you know, take messages and comments there. Uh, and perhaps when this COVID situation settles down and I've got a little bit more time, I'll be able to post a bit more content. But at the moment, it's just my favorite recipes up there at the moment and a few scientific, interesting things that have come out lately. Yeah. And I love, I mean, you have so much content up there already. So somebody <laughs> could go and look at everything you've already posted. And a lot of your page is these really cool recipes you make and most of them are very simple but also delicious so I think that's how I originally connected with you maybe through seeing the different recipes you were posting and liking those um but yeah I would definitely encourage people to check that out do you have a website as well uh yes we are at sydneyendocrinology.com.au oh cool Awesome. So the best place, though, if people are in the United States or not in Sydney, it would probably be on social media to connect. Yeah, I think so. Although through the website, there is a contact page as well. And there's a, we've got quite a lot of endocrinologists on our page. And you might find one that has a specific sub-interest in the area that you're interested in. Uh, oh, so yeah, okay. hop on and have a look. Okay, great. Well, I'll put all of those links in the show notes so that they're very accessible to everyone. But I just want to thank you again for sharing your time with me. I know that you were making your kids lunches right before this and you're very busy. So I really appreciate you being here and just sharing all of your insights with us. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure, Brooke. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.